This week on Merchants of Change, we've got Sean Hurd. Sean spent 22 years in the U.S. Army, the bulk of that time in Special Forces as a Ranger and Green Beret. Sean transitioned out of military service into a successful sales career without any outside help and shares in my mission to pay it forward to the next generation. Sean is going to be helping us teach and train military veterans who want to become professional salespeople. Here he is, Sean Hurd. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? How we doing, Sean? Good, man. Uh, glad to be here today. Uh, we're, we're really excited to, to have you. Um, today on the show, we got Sean, Sean Hurd. Uh, thank you for being on the show. And, and Sean, this is a big deal for us. Um, this is a show that we built for new sellers and, and people considering a career in sales. Um, and our first mission when I started Shift Group was to help elite athletes become elite sales professional. Uh, and as you know, we're, we're expanding uh, to include our, our country's military veterans into our mission because it's always been about helping high character individuals use that character and mindset that made them unique in whatever they were doing and help them apply it to what I believe to be the best career in the world, which is sales. Um, so our, usually our guests are former athletes. We're going to start having more veterans with you being our first guest in the space. Um, and we try to get people that have had success in sales. So um, what we like to start with when we have athletes is their, their sports career. So I think on the military side, it makes sense to do the same. So um, I'd love to talk about uh, your transition period and working in sales, but starting with that with that Army experience. So um, before we jump in, can you talk a little bit about what, what you're envisioning for our program for veterans? Yeah, so um, like, like JR said, I'm the, the veteran coordinator now for Shift Group, and um, I'm really excited that we're start, you, you're starting and, and your team a veteran vertical to help, um, you know, former people that serve the United States military get into tech sales. And the reason why it hits really close home to me is because I did that about two and a half years ago completely on my own with, with zero help. And it, and it was, it was very painful to the point where like I almost gave up, which is like very uncharacteristic of me because I'm pretty hard headed and I don't really give up that, that often, but I was about to throw in the towel. So, um, when you told me what you were doing with athletes, uh, I thought it was, it, it was going to be, you know, an easy thing to kind of replicate, with, with the vets, because like you said, we, we share a lot in common. And and if you look at some of the, the real high-performing veterans in the military, I don't know if I ever told you this or not, a lot of them have a, a strong athletic background prior to joining the military. Um, a lot of guys and I served with were wrestling, you know, state wrestling champs, uh, baseball, football, all that type of stuff. So there was a lot of attributes from the sports 
world that transition into, you know, being a high performer in the military. And so that when you told me we were going to start this vertical, I was like, this is, this is going to be easy. I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's such a logical next step for the business um, and for our customers, right? This is, these are the type of people they're looking for. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, all right, let's get into your background, Sean. So we always start with a very broad question. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of your favorite and least favorite memories of your time in the U.S. Army? Yeah, so um, I, I did 22 years, and I did a pretty long career in the Army. Uh, you know, I uh, you only have to do 20. I did two extra years because I uh, made a certain rank, and I had to do two extra years to make, you know get the pay from that rank as, as retirement. But uh, did some hard stuff. I I started off in the the seventy fifth uh, Ranger Regiment, which uh, I don't know if you ever seen that movie uh, Black Hawk Down. It, it, it's just uh, like a elite infantry unit. It's the Army's elite infantry unit, and so that was what kind of laid the foundation for my success in the military because it's it's a super uh, very hard unit to be a new person in, kind of like being an SDR in sales but on steroids, it's like very hard. So I made it through that. Um, after that, that, that first thing, that first like three, four years in Ranger Battalion, there was nothing in um, the military that I, I couldn't do because um, it was just a super challenging time. And I, I see you talk about it all the time in your content about making it through that first year of sales. So I had the similar experience there being a new guy in an elite infantry unit and they really uh, do everything they can to, to test you and get you to either prove that, you know, you're worthy of being there or, you know, they try to get you out of there because the end game is like going to combat and they don't want people they can't trust on the battlefield. So, uh, like, I think we all look back at like adversity that we get through fondly, but at the time it's real it's really hard. Would, would you say that like that first experience is, is kind of both your least favorite as well as your favorite time when you look back at, at your whole 22 year career? Yeah. Cause like it's, it's the same as, uh, you know, you probably in your hockey career, um, the worst times make the best stories. And when you get with all your really close friends, you talk about the hardest times, you know, and those are the ones that you remember and you really, uh, actually enjoy later on in life. So, um, yeah, I think it's similar to kind of what you talk about all the time. When you, when you look back at, at your time in the Army uh, and some of your, like, favorite teammates that you, were, you worked with, um, what, like, traits and characteristics come to mind for those, like, those top favorite teammates you've had? So for me, um, it was always um, – I really like teammates that, are, that can push through uh, adversity and the ones that, that do that – seem to, uh, the ones that really have that under control are the ones that can help other people that are struggling to push through adversity because, um, you know, you get put in some pretty tough situations in, uh, in the, in the military, especially in special operations. And the ones that have shines are the ones that easily make it through adversity and they pull people along with them. Does that make sense? Because like nobody's perfect and everybody has like a bad day or a moment where they don't think they can do something. And, and the guys that are able to, um, you know, not only 
be good themselves, but pull people along are the ones that I really looked up to throughout my career. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and same goes in, in corporate America. And I think in sports, those, those leaders that don't, they don't need a title to, to be considered leaders really. Um, speaking of leadership, like what do you think your leadership from your special forces days, like what would, how would they describe Sean Hurd? Um, I think like, and I talk about this a lot. Um, you go to, you grow in the military, you know, it's a long career. And if you stay the whole time, you kind of grow through what we call the three phases of leadership, which is tactical, um, organizational and strategic. So like tactical is like, you know, you're down in, in doing the basic tasks, uh, leading at the, at the bottom, not the bottom, but the, you know, the core level of what your organizational is doing. And it, that's the easy days, right? That's just like being at the right place, right time, right uniform executing the basics uh, at a high level. And then then you move on to what we call organizational leadership. Is And that, I think that's the most important leadership in the military because an organizational leader, number one, he has to be able to take the strategic leadership guidance, uh, get it, think about it, and then somehow try to translate that down to the tactical level. And then he has to take the tactical, what the tactical level is feedback and get it from them, like think about it and then translate it back up to the strategic level thinkers. So you're kind of like a middleman, uh, constantly moving information from the top down and the down and, and from the bottom back up. Right. So that, and then that's the most important part. I think in, in a sales organization, you know, it'd be like a, like a, an, uh, director of sales or something like that. You know, he's in the middle of the, the SDRs and AEs and the VP or the CRO. And then at the very end of my career, I started, I didn't, I just barely touched it, but I started getting into strategic levels where you're talking about like uh, national mission objectives and stuff like that. And that's where kind of like you're away from the tactics and you're just more, you know, thinking and strategizing and stuff like that. So I would say like the favorite part of my, my career was that organizational thing. And, and I think what they would say about me when I was in that, that I, um, that's where I think I learned, um, you know, um, to look through the lens, you know, of the person that I'm leading. Cause when I was at like the tactical level, I didn't really care about any of that stuff. It was all about getting the job done. And then, so I learned empathy at the organizational and I didn't really learn until like, I would say 16 years in, I didn't, I didn't really kind of learn empathy. And so I'd say at that level, that's where I kind of grew as a leader the most. So you think um, when you were at that organizational level of leadership, the, the people who were underneath you would describe you as empathetic for the ones that got to Not know at first. It was a learning curve for me because like, um, you know, I ended, I ended my career, not ended, but a couple years before I ended my career, I was uh, a senior enlisted advisor for a 600 person task force that was spread across four countries. And you got to think about how many, how diverse that population is and all the issues I had. I couldn't just like solve it with like one method or one way. I had to like kind of look through the lens of every scenario. And, and I, I think that like, and we'll get into this later, but I think that's what kind of made me a, a great salesman, like right off, right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, empathy is probably one of the most important 
characteristics you can have as a salesperson is living in your customer's shoes. Um, you use the word, and, and I talk about it too. It's different, but it's it's similar about the transition being painful, right? And and yeah, you know, for those that have never served, it's it's hard to relate. Um, but like, so talking to the business leaders that we work with in the private sector, um, how can how can those folks make that transition less painful for for our veterans? In your opinion, so. I think the major thing that prevents an organization from actually achieving, a lot of them have veteran initiatives, is this educating um, their, it's mostly their HR and hiring managers on um, a veteran's not going to meet the requirements that you put out in your job description. This is not going to happen. So if you, if you go to, if you go to a, an interview, for example, and they're like, hey, describe a time you did X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, you know, I never did that. Like, like you know it. Like, why am I sitting here and you're asking me a question about something that you know I never did? And then and it just, it would get frustrating, right? And then, so, because they, they wouldn't change their playbook for a veteran who literally came from a different career and, and they're changing careers. And uh, they're giving you a chance, I think, because they have initiative to take the interview, but they just don't have the education to, uh, con- or, you know, take in the information that you're telling them. Yeah, it's it's one thing to have a like a named initiative, so you can put it on your website, post about it on LinkedIn. Uh, but if you're not going to do the right thing to actually capture that talent, then then it's a waste of everybody's time, and you're just Kind of virtue signaling a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Because like you can't ask a veteran how many times he's hit quota. Like I, I've never had a quota. I can I can say, hey, I got tasked to to do X, Y, and Z, and the 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 standard was I ninety percent of people had to do it, and I, you know I got the I can come up with some like parallel scenario, but that takes a lot of time and practice, which. Actually, not shameless plug. That's kind of what we're going to try to help the veterans do at Shift Group. But it's on these organizations also if they really care about hiring veterans to to actually bring someone in, maybe like me or something that uh, that knows the military and helps them like break down the barriers and translate stuff. If that makes sense, it makes complete sense. Um, I think like you know, tech sales all of a sudden became cool like a few years ago. Uh, but like prior to that, sales was sale, and in a lot of cases, sales still is like a four-letter word for most people. Even the people that start our program, the first thing we have to do is get them over the hump of like thinking a salesperson is a used car salesperson, right? Um, yeah. But you were unique. Like you kind of came out. It, it seems like, and you were pretty set on getting into sales. Like, where did your interest in sales come come from? So um, I don't. I have a close knit of like high school friends that a circle that I fish with and, and keep in touch the last 22 years. And the most, the most successful ones that are multimillionaires were, were salespeople. Right. And uh, so I was talking, you know, when you start getting out, you start talking to people that are outside the military trying to figure out what you're going to do. And I was talking to one of my friends and he was like, Hey, my wife's uh, my wife's best friend's husband was a Navy whatever and he's a vp of sales at salesforce and he makes i don't know 
you can guess, probably 400,000 a year. And I was like, he's making 400,000 a year. And I, I didn't know anything about SaaS or software sales. And I started just doing my typical research. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of money to be made in this market. And I just went in, all in on it. And, and you talked about, you know, you, you, you took it, you took it on, on your own. And that's something that we're trying to save people from having to do. But like, can you talk a little bit it, for those that are listening that maybe do want to potentially, you know, obviously, hopefully come with shift group, but like, what was your, tell us about your approach to get into sales. What was that? What was that like? So at first um, I did what every veteran does and I, I get a, a, a nice resume put together and I essentially what there's these groups that, that teach you how to do your resume. You, you, you put all this uh, jargon on there and, and they all look the same. If you look at every veteran's um, resume, it's all going to be like project manager and this and that. It all looks the same, right? So I got the resume together and I just got on LinkedIn and just applied to 500 SaaS jobs, right? Like I just hit apply, apply, apply. And then I was getting rejection after rejection or, you know, I would get uh, one interview out of it and I didn't know how to articulate, you know, what I did in the military and how that applies to being, these are all SDR jobs and how it applies to being an SDR. And I, it, it, it was bad, JR. It was, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what I'm doing. <laughs> And then I, I, I kind of started just digging around on LinkedIn and watching certain SaaS people like maneuvering on LinkedIn. I was like, hey, I think this is like the way I got to move forward is like I got to network with these people behind the scenes. And then once I started networking them behind the scenes, it all started kind of coming together, if that makes sense. It's, it's so wild to me that somebody would see a profile like yours and your military career and not at least take an interview. Like that's just, it's crazy to me, but it is what it is. That's why we're here. That's why we're going to help. Um, you talked about, you know, kind of flopping on a few interviews, right? And, and, and one of the things that we spend a ton of time on, as you know, haven't, haven't seen our training is crafting a narrative about your life experience and applying it to sales. We've done it really well with athletes and now we're going to do it really well with veterans, um, what like what ended up what ended up clicking and working for you when it came to crafting your narrative in the interview uh, process? So um, the 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 flops were all coming from a lot of them were like, hey, um, you know, it's a typical you you've interviewed thousands of people probably in your CRO days, but it's a typical like explain how whatever you did in the military, because they don't, they don't know. They think everybody's the same. Like, how's that going to, how, how, how's that going to make you a good salesperson? And it was hard for me to put two and two together because I didn't know what a good salesperson was. Like I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't nobody told me what a good SaaS salesperson is. And so what actually got me over the hump and I'll give him a shout out. Is there was this guy that was a SDR manager for Chili Piper. I don't know if you heard that company. His name was Matthew Roberts. And he was like, hey, we're not going to hire you. No way. But I like you a lot. So I'm going to help you. And then he started kind of helping me. He didn't help me like create my narrative, but he kind of helped teaching me about SaaS, right? Tech sales. So once I learned about tech sales, 
I, I was able to craft my own narrative. And I, I, I told uh, Tom this in the pre-interview, but essentially what I would say is like, hey, I'm a senior level special forces operator. You know, we're, we're experts in culture. That's what we do as Green Berets. I've been all over the world. And what I do is I have to convince uh, foreign partner forces, foreign military, even U.S. State Department officials that run these countries that um, we need to do X, Y, and Z in support of uh, U.S. foreign policy objectives. And sometimes like X, Y, and Z was dangerous. It would, it would put, you know, these people's lives in danger. It put their family in danger. And, it, and for like the State Department specifically, it would, you know, it, it could risk the ambassador's job. Or his repu- or her his or her reputation, you know, if we did something wrong, or you know that you messed up or something like that. So I was like, hey, if I can do these, and this is all stuff that's like very serious and has like very serious consequences. So if I can do that at a high level for twenty years, I can sell a a, a dialer, right? Or I could sell a contact data or whatever. It is it. it, it and people are like, oh, wow, I, that's crazy, you know, because and then so I started kind of narrowing down on that kind of stuff. And I started getting farther in, in into interviews. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, right, you're, you're selling you were selling partner forces on completing objectives that were in the best interest of, of what you guys, of what we wanted the U.S. foreign policy was. That's sales. Like you're just. The persona is different and the, the value prop is different, but that's that makes a ton of sense on, on how you spun that. Um, yeah. I got to assume, uh, and I know you and I have talked about this, so I know you, you feel the same way, but there's obviously some preconceived notions when someone sees veteran that they're assuming, like hiring managers or talent acquisition people. How, how do you think these, these companies are traditionally viewing veterans when it comes to hiring? I think they, they view them through the war movie that they watched, right? So the Saving Private Ryans and, you know, the Black Hawk Downs and all that. And, um, you know, I am kind of the people that you see in the war movie. But you got to understand, like, um, there's like 200 just in the Army alone. And, and don't quote me on this and Google it. But I think there's like over 220 occupations that you can do in the military, right? You can do anything from being a cook flying drones, fixing computers, satellite communications, special forces, infantry, fixing vehicles, fixing aircraft, you know, name it. It's like, it, it's a it's a broad spectrum of, of careers. And then each one of those careers has different types of personalities, right? If you're going to go into the infantry, you know, you're going to have super A-type direct personalities. And if you're going to be a, a cyber warrior, you know, you're probably going to be an introvert, quiet type thinker person, right? And I'm not saying that's that's the standard across that job, but I'm, what I'm saying is, is people think that, in my opinion, that we're very direct. Uh, we don't get along with people that aren't in the military. We're not. We're you know we're, we're very confrontational, and and then a lot of people think because they see it all plastered over the news that we all have post traumatic stress syndrome. We've all been war and we all have mental health issues and and they say they want to help veterans but like think about it like who really wants to hire somebody that has a bunch of mental health issues right they're like i don't want to deal with that but that, that's not the that's not the case like not everybody has P- ptsd and if you do most people like me have it under control and you wouldn't you would ne- you would never even know about it right so 
it's that's the kind of perception I think that's out there. I may be wrong, but that's that's kind of what I was running into. And plus, yeah. like a lot, another thing is, is when we're like you can get younger people that do like shorter tours and get out, but someone like me gets out and I'm forty, and then you got to run up against the whole age thing. And I'm like, man, I'll run. You know, when I was an SDR at a certain company with sixty people, I was running circles around twenty-two year olds, like no problem. So, like, there, there's, a, I think, there's like an age thing too, because you know, we spent twenty-two years in a career. We 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 we've always dealt with that, even before we went into the veteran space with the folks that we work with that play ten to fifteen years of professional sports. And they're yeah. like, yeah, like they're a little, they're a little older for us. And it's like, what is wrong with you? Like this person is dead motivated. They got kids at home. Like they're going to do whatever it takes to be successful because of their age. And they bring to bear all this like real life maturity and life experience. So such a short sighted view, but, but some people, yeah, but for, I mean, if a CRO is watching this, like most of the ejections I would get as an SDR because we're working in a remote environment. We're like, hey, my kids, I'm driving this, that, or whatever. I've I've dealt with all that. So like I can easily talk to someone about, oh, I got kids too, man, or uh, you know, whatever. Um, I got a lot of life experience, you know, and I've been around the world and uh twenty-two year old, not nothing against them, I love them, but they don't they just don't have that life experience. So how are you supposed to talk to forty year old CROs when you're twenty two? I mean, it happens. There's some good people that do it, but I'm saying it, I think it gave me a leg up. To be honest with you, I I agree, and 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 definitely for those listening, that that those preconceived notions about PTSD and you know all the things that you talked about, that you know we got to drop that shit. It's 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 not true. Um, and to your point, there's so much there's so much opportunity in, in our armed services that people are doing. Uh, that is unique and, and such great life experience. You mentioned cooks. My grandfather was a cook in the Korean War. Like, and but he still he still brought home like a lot of experience that made. And he was a sales guy. He would, he sold in the food and beverage space very very successfully for forty years. And he and he tells me all he told me all the time when I was little that what he learned serving in the military made him a great salesperson. So I've seen it firsthand. Um, and I. I, I we ask everybody this question, Sean. I'm, I'm actually really excited to get your take. I think it's going to mean a lot to the veterans that go through our program. Um, as you know, we don't sign exclusive agreements with our hiring partners. So usually somebody comes through the program, they're interviewing at multiple spots. They're usually getting multiple offers. Um, you just went through this uh, fairly recently. How are you going to coach? How would you coach a veteran in terms of like how they're going to select their company, right? We don't we don't like to hear, well, this company's 5K base higher, so I'm going to go there. Like, those are stupid. What are the things that you're looking for when you're helping somebody make a selection that you think are important, specifically in their first company they go work? So I wish I could Google this real quick, but I'm not going to because I don't want to mess up the, the video. But I think it's like 90% of veterans quit their first role within their first year. I, I mean, uh, if it, if it's it, if it's not ninety, it's high, right? It's it's uh, it's unusually high compared to like a college grad. And the number one reason why they quit, well, there's two reasons. Number one, they don't 
align with the mission of the company that they go to work for. And number two, they don't, there's just, they don't like the leadership structure that's in place. And a lot of times it's poor leadership, right? So I think that's the two, what that stuff you need to be looking for. You need to do something that you're excited about, right? Um, Because, you know, for me, for example, uh, you know, I was traveling the world. I was busy all the time, seeing all this crazy stuff. And if I get into something that I'm not passionate about, I'm going to get bored really quickly, right? And then when you get bored, that's when bad stuff starts to happen, right? You start getting negative and stuff. And number two is like, you got to, I would say your first line supervisor, like whoever you're going to be working for, you got to really like and identify with. And it doesn't have to be someone older than you. Like I had a SDR manager that was like way younger than me, but we got along great. So I think that's the two advices, the pieces of advice I would give to somebody is like, you got to like what you're doing. <laughs> and, and, and number two, um, the, uh, you got to like your, your first line supervisor, because if not, you're, we, we just, we've seen a lot of leadership, man. I've seen a lot of leadership. And one thing I can't put up with is like this bad, bad leadership. It just, I can't stick around. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need to. So that's kind of the two things. hundred percent. I'm, I'm a big believer that actually like that point you just made is, is likely the most important, right? Like if you could, like, listen, you're not always going to be super passionate about cybersecurity or HR tech or marketing tech. Obviously, the mission of the company is meaningful, but the product you sell, less meaningful in terms of your passion. But but being around a leader that you think you can learn from, that you think cares about your success, um, that is going to give you the foundation so you can go and grow in those first 12 to 24 months, and then you can go and take that learning, take that foundation and, and go on to something that, you know, like you did, that you can make a lot of money at, be successful and super important. Um, one of the things we bonded, the way we meet, we meet, me and Sean met for everybody was we have a very similar take when it comes to, uh, I guess I'll say culture. Um, although I don't think this is real culture, right? All these people out there and, and it's leadership, it's it's the noise on LinkedIn about like work life balance and mental health and um, you know remote whatever right like it's it can you just talk a little bit about why like people with athletic DNA and service DNA should should run like hell from those types of companies and those types of leaders? Yeah, because the people that talk about that stuff. Don't talk about, so you get into sales to create revenue. And when you create revenue, you make money, right? Like, like, like this isn't an easy job. There's a lot of stress. There's quotas. You don't even know exactly what you're going to be making for the year, which causes like, you know, it could cause your, your significant other and your family stress. How can you plan if you don't even know what you're making for the kind of, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, you say it all times, like 30% of the deals are closed. So like 70 of it's a no, there's just a lot of drama. And if you're not revenue focused and you're focused on uh, all the culture stuff, me and you kind of push back on, then the odds are that company number one, isn't going to be creating enough revenue for you to meet your goals. 
And number two, you're going to be wasting a, a lot of time doing stuff that doesn't matter and um, which is creating revenue and, and, and getting commission checks, right? And then learning. So um, I would, I, I, I didn't, that's, that was a big learning curve for me too. Cause I kind of bought, I was, I, I was like, I don't, this, this is kind of weird to me, but you know, it seems like everybody's always happy and trying to be cool in the, in the space of, with all this stuff. And then when I really got into it, I'm like, none of this matters. Like just be a good teammate. You need to find a place that where the team's tight. Everybody likes each other. You can say whatever you want. I'm not talking about like sexual harassment and being racist and stuff, but I'm saying you can say whatever you want, like about, you know, the job, so, you know, and, and everybody's honest with each other. You're always like critiquing, getting better. And that's what vets and athletes do. They, they practice, they don't do well, they get told how to fix it. And then they, they practice and they get better and they practice and they get better. It's the same thing in the army. We we do we do a, a training event. It doesn't go well. You do an after action review. You go back right out there and do it again. It doesn't, and you're never happy. Really, there's never like, hey, great, you you won, right? So, and I think that's what athletes and vets bring to the table is like they're never happy and they're mission focused. They're not worried about all that distraction, right? Work life balance. I saw a guy that said a quote the other day. It's like. The people that talk about work-life balance aren't happy with their jobs and who they work for. So, like, I if I'm happy, like, like with Shift Group, for example, if I'm happy being around people, I don't mind being around them, right? I don't, like, find ways to not be around them. So I think a lot of that stuff's just a distraction to hide the fact that they're not revenue-focused, which at the end of the day, I think they're all, you know, as we can see now, they, they all laid off you know, 30, 40% of their company because they were never revenue focused. Culture, culture is not like fucking, you know, cool hat day on Fridays. Culture is like what people do when nobody's looking and how they treat each other in the trenches. And like, you made the point of like, you know, be a great teammate. Sometimes being a great teammate is telling someone that they suck and saying that you, Hey, you got to get better, man. Like we need you to be better. If we're going to accomplish our goal as a team, like, and I look back at the best teams I ever played for, and we would have knocked down, drag them out, like screaming matches with each other. Those are people whose weddings I've been in, right? Where we're like, we're like rolling on the floor wrestling because somebody's not doing what, what they're supposed to do. It comes down to like, you know, not to sound corny, but it's like being accountable and being authentic are, are, that's not like wearing a hat backwards. I know I do that a lot, but that's not being authentic. Being authentic is like really knowing what I'm good at, knowing what I'm bad at, and and taking feedback to make sure that I can be the best person I can be. That's what culture is, in my opinion. So, so Jr. spent um, I spent a, about a month and a half, two months as a SDR team leader. I had five SDRs underneath me, and we were at the company I worked at. We were required to always be on Zoom, like so. Like each SDR team leader had their own Zoom room. Your team was in Zoom. It wasn't as bad as everybody makes it out to be. You can go work out, eat, whatever. Hey, I'm going to go work out. It's like being in an office, right? Hey, I'm going to go eat. I'm going to go work out. All right, later, man. Do, do your thing. But what um, what I learned is like, I, you know, I was, we were, we were all better being there, just being honest with each other and being like, and number two, like, uh, you know, hey, why'd you just fold? Like, you just gave up on that cold call. Like, why? 
oh, you know, my head, you know, well, then go walk away and go like do some jumping jacks and then come back if your head's not right. Cause you just waste it. You got that person on the phone, which is hard to do these days and you wasted it. Right. So like if, and then they would go walk away, come back and book a meeting. And then so next thing you know, like everybody in this company wants to come hang out in our zoom room because we have the most real environment in there. So that that's what, that's what people want. There are people, uh, there, there's a lot of hate from our generation down on like the younger millennial generation, but the good, there's good millennials out there and they want to be held accountable and they want, they, they, they want to be part of uh, the culture that, you know, we, we were part of in the military and on uh, college and professional sports team. I agree. I agree. Like, like we all hear the, the old men yelling at clouds about Gen Z, Gen Z's entitlement. That's why, that's why shift group is unique because we don't, we don't have people that are entitled. These are people that come from backgrounds that understand that you only get what you put into something. Um, so that's a great point on the, on the entitlement, the victimhood that we see out there today pretty prevalently. It's, it's disappointing. Um, Sean, we, we, we kind of close out uh, with the two same questions with, with every guest we have. I'm actually excited to hear because I've never asked you these questions. Um, we ask everybody to highlight a skill uh, that they have as a salesperson that really ma- makes them and made them elite as a salesperson specifically. What's your like, what's your elite skill? Um, mine's gr- grit or determination. Um, I just don't quit. Like if you give me a goal, I'm hitting it. Like, and I've hit every goal I've ever had in my short sales career. And I'm not lying. You can go back and ask all my coworkers. I've hit them all. Was it easy? No. Sometimes it, I was working, you know, SDRs, it, a lot of them are paid hourly. It, it's a salary, but you get paid hourly. And these companies, because of HR rules and stuff, say, hey, you can only work eight hours because of overtime and whatever. And I would just shut the clock off and then work, I work another five hours because, like, I'm, I'm, I'm winning. Like, for me, it wasn't even hit. I didn't even think about quota. Quota was easy. It was about being the top person in the organization. So that I think that's my my skill is uh, this grit and determination to be the top person, even though I'm probably not the most skilled person. I love that. I love that point you just made about like having quota as a goal. To me, it's like if quota is your goal, man, you're in the wrong career. I, I when I my second company I ever worked with, it was really the first company I ever interviewed for because I kind of got just got my first job. Um, I did all the negotiation for my, my salary, my variable comp, and I kind of was about to sign. And the CEO asked me, he's like, don't you want to know what your quote is going to be? And I'm like, no, it doesn't, doesn't fucking matter. I'm assuming it's the same as everybody else's. And if that's the case, I'm going to blow it out. I don't care what the number is. I'm, that's not why I'm here. But that, uh, that, that's uh, a good point, Joe. I was like, if there's one person in that organization that's hitting that number, then it's hittable. So it doesn't matter, right? Um, I mean, here's another fun fact, and, and hopefully I can use this to like motivate people. Is you see a lot of like influencers in the in the tech sales space talk about having to learn and be slow and take your time and all that stuff. I I hit um, when I went through a one my one week training for this SaaS company I work for. I hit the ramp quota in the two and a half days of cold calling that we were allowed to do at the end for the month. So like, and I just. I got 15 meetings in like two and a half days. Had no idea what I was doing. I just like, 
could talk to people like this and I, and I just work, you know, I just stayed after work and called people. Right. So it's like, you don't have to, you don't have to go in there and be timid and slow and learn. I mean, it, I'm not saying you don't have a, a open mindset. Like I always tell people, find the best person in your organization and follow them around with a leash and copy what they're doing. It, it, it really shortens your learning curve because like, especially in, in that environment, because every environment is different. So in that environment, that top person is doing what they need to do to be the top person. So just copy them essentially. But I, what I, what I don't like is all these people that go in these organizations. It takes them like six months to like just hit quote, you know, hit quota. I'm like, that's why these companies can't make money. Yeah, you know, sitting around waiting for people to hit quota in like six months. Just go in there like a like a madman or a mad woman and just get after it. That's my advice. Yeah, I, I want to get what you just said tattooed on on like my chest. If if one person hits quota, quota is hittable because all I see <laughs> are these posts of like, well, this organization only twenty four percent of people hit quota, and it's the executive's fault. It's like, no, it's not. This is. We make, we make more money than freaking 99% of the country, right? This should not be easy to do that. It should be hard. It's okay if, if 50% of the people hit quota. That means 50% of people are doing the work and are good enough to, to earn, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Um, love it, dude. Love it. We had, uh, we had, a, top, we, we had a top AE at, at one company I worked at who started as an SDR, and he was like, JR, he was killing it, man. And everybody, all the rest of the AEs are like, well, he gets all the renewals and he gets this and he gets, you, you've heard it, right? And I'm like, yeah, but he, he earned all that. That's his, that's his journey and his game. Like, it's, he started off where you did as an SDR and he didn't, he didn't have like anybody that gave him that stuff. He went out and got it. So, um, yeah, I, the organizations that are like that, that's a, back to your question a couple questions ago. You don't want to be part of organizations that are like trying to fix the territories and all this other stuff so, to make everything equal. That's not why we get in, in the sales. No, no, 100%. Um, I don't know what the what the parallel here is in to military service, but as you know, Sean, my father is a 45-year-long, you know, Hall of Fame hockey coach. And he used to preach to us growing up, like, you know, it's like Abe Lincoln's old quote, if you're going to be, a, if you're going to be something, be a good one. Right. And the idea was like, he talked about professionalism. He said, a lot of people play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey players. And, and, and <clears throat> I believe that sales is a profession and you need to carry yourself like a professional. So when I meet somebody who's a, who's really good at what they do, I call them a pro. I'm like, Hey, this guy, this girl, this is a pro. Um, so I'd love to hear, like, last question from your perspective. What does being a pro in sales, what does that mean to you? So I think the best salespeople that I've met have created, through trial and error, they've created a process. And you can, to, to, to make that, like, athlete or military, they, they, they created, like, a, a, a way of practicing or, you know, a standard operating procedure. They, they created a process and they stuck to that process. Like it's, it's just, they, they, they're very disciplined. So number one, they put in the, a professional is willing to put in as it, the amount of work that's needed to, to be at the top. And number two, 
they 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 just don't do things willy nilly. It's all for a purpose. So they try something, it works. They double down on it until it doesn't work, and then they find something new. They're not out there just willy nilly just doing things with no purpose. Everything has a purpose. So a pro salesperson is someone that has a process. They're always uh, refining that process and they're sticking to that process. And what me and you always talk about is they're willing to do whatever it takes to be at the top of their organization. I love it. A, a, an amateur does something till they get it right. A professional does something till they don't get, they can't get it wrong. Love it. Sean, this is awesome. Gonna be required listening. Um, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for joining our team. We're so grateful and fortunate to have you. And so are the, the veterans that get to go through our program. Really appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it was fun being here. Thank you. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.